Hi, this is your host, Pete Bloom. Welcome to American Heroes Network. Our core mission is serving the brave men and women who have sacrificed to ensure our freedom. You will hear true stories from those that have served, learn about veteran organizations and resources, and gain hope for your future knowing American Heroes Network, your community, and other veterans are here and at the ready to serve and help you and your family. We will talk about the hard topics like PTSD and TBI. You will also hear military history, inspirational stories, learn about networking with the community, and more. So come join us and be part of our family. Today's guest is an Army combat veteran who suffered severe injury due to an IED in Iraq. He transformed his life to serve in another way and helps veterans both physically and mentally. He's the director of Warrior Speak at Wounded Warrior Project and the founder of the Warrior Spirit Retreat. I would like to welcome Dan Evans. Dan, thank you for serving and how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Pete. It's my honor and privilege to have been able to serve. You know, I just am lucky to still be here and finding new ways to serve every day. So what Dan's talking about there is basically he lost his legs below the knees and he lives with a traumatic brain injury and the emotional wounds of war. Then Dan discovered the life-changing power of yoga, which has enabled him to heal from invisible wounds of war in a way that nothing else could. And Dan's going to tell us about that. He also quickly realized that other wounded warriors could benefit from yoga too. And he has been helping them since then, as well as many, many other people. So Dan is a great individual, and I think you all are going to enjoy hearing Dan today and learning all about Wounded Warrior Projects. This should be a great episode. So Dan, tell us about joining the military, first of all, and what you did in the military. Yeah, for me, I joined in my senior year of high school to fight in the Gulf War, if you remember your history. So I graduated in 91. The war started. February 91 was over in March, and then I didn't go in until June. And so I joined and served eight years peacetime army. I was a 63 Bravo, which is a light-wheeled vehicle mechanic at first. And then I transitioned after eight years of active duty, four years in Germany, four years at Fort Bragg. I was the training NCO in the 18th Airborne Corps. Loved my job, but then got out to go back to school, but stayed in the National Guard. And so I was in a combat engineer unit in the California Army National Guard and worked in the training room there, was the retention NCO for the unit, and then 9-11 happened, got deployed once for a stateside assignment, and then again a few years later in 2004 to Iraq for Operation Iraqi Freedom II. Today, the National Guard State of Readiness is completely amazing, and in 2003-2004, it wasn't. So it took our whole battalion to create one deployable company, and we were reflagged as provisional infantry. So we went over as an infantry unit, and we weren't ready, not prepared. Our equipment wasn't up to par, and we started learning like really hard lessons really quick and started losing people. And there's something really powerful about goals. And when the consequence of not meeting your goal, and in this case, the goal of at least being an efficient combat unit, the consequence of not meeting your goal is that your best friends die, that transformational power in those moments is just unfathomable. You know what I lovingly referred to as like the Beverly Hillbillies rolling into combat with our vehicles that were like, <laughs> you know, just matte green with plywood roofs and no armor, right? We literally look like, like what? It's like the D team going in to fight the A team. I lovingly refer to us as the Beverly Hillbillies, but watching these people transform into one of the most efficient combat units that I've ever had the privilege of serving with, let alone having the opportunity to lead. And we got to be very good at our jobs. A lot of people don't remember the exact history because we're actually living it right now, so we're not talking about it historically. But the Battle of Fallujah started November 7th of 2004, and I didn't fight in Fallujah. There were coordinated assaults that happened all throughout the theater. And so we got operational intelligence that the enemy was coming our way. We got that intel on November 9th. And then we just drew up a battle plan, said we're going to meet the enemy where they were. We practiced, prepared, rehearsed. And then November 10th was our mission time. And that's the day that my life changed forever. I've read a lot about your time and things that you've done. And if this is something that you want to share, you can kind of tell us what happened and then what happened after? I mean, how did you recover? Where did you go? Absolutely. 
Yeah, so that mission was supposed to be a 72-hour dismounted counterinsurgent operation. And I was leading that mission because it should have been my platoon sergeant. I was the first squad leader of third platoon. So my platoon sergeant should have been leading that mission. However, he was scheduled to have hernia surgery. He'd been fighting, unbeknownst to any of us, through this excruciating pain of a protruding abdominal hernia. Finally had an opportunity to get it fixed. And then that's when everything started to happen. So he wasn't able to be deployed on that mission. So it was me as the next in line of command. You know, I was taking it very seriously, obviously. Did all the pre-combat checks with my team before that mission. We had a zero four hundred hour start time. And I just remember going through doing all my pre-combat checks and I go to my vehicle and I go to tap my driver and he turns around and it's my boss, Mike, Sergeant First Class Mike Adelini. And he was like, Mike, what are you doing here? And he was like, hey. He told me some story about sitting on Smitty's chest and telling him that he was sick today. And if, if he didn't agree that he was sick today, he was going to be really sick today. And that's probably exactly what he did. But the reality was, is he didn't want to put his men into harm's way without him at least being there for what he could do. And what he could do in that moment was drive. And so he hopped in the driver's seat and we headed out for that mission exactly zero four hundred hours. And it was pitch black outside. You know, I remember leaving the main gates of LSA Anaconda and we took a almost immediate right on a well-paved, well-traveled road that we called Route Dover. And then an almost immediate left on a pitiful excuse for dirt road headed out to what it was supposed to be our dismount site where we were going to maybe seven kilometers down that road and through a couple turns dismount and go meet the enemy where they were. That was the plan. And as we're bouncing down this pitiful excuse for a road in complete darkness, complete silence, boom, the earth erupted underneath our vehicle as my head was bowed in prayer like it was before every mission. And then I just remember being in that prayer. And then when the explosion happened, I could feel and hear the dirt, the debris, the truck basically disintegrating around my body. And when I opened my eyes, I realized that I was ejected from the vehicle and my legs remained caught in the twisted and burning metal that used to be the floorboard and undercarriage of the truck. And I was completely confused for, I don't know how long, it seemed like forever, but it was probably just a couple seconds. I might've been knocked out for a couple seconds. I'm not sure, but when I opened my eyes, the blast was still happening. The debris was still falling. There was a huge dust cloud. So it wasn't long. I can tell my legs were stuck in the vehicle. And I went to reach up to grab my weapon, which was stuck in the door frame of the vehicle. Because in my head, I was like, Dan, get up. Put your weapon into operation. Dan, get up. Put your weapon into operation. And I just couldn't. I couldn't move. And then I just laid back and I looked. As the dust started to descend and settle, I looked to the driver's compartment of the vehicle. And that's when I noticed instantly that Sergeant First Class Mike Eileen, he had made the ultimate sacrifice. It was painfully, visibly obvious. And then I knew I was hurt bad, but I didn't really understand the extent of my injuries. My legs were stuck and caught in the truck that was now on fire. Not like a raging inferno or anything, but it was the fire starting. And I knew I had to get out and I couldn't move my legs. They were stuck in and I'm realizing I'm hurt and I don't know what is really happening. So like training kicks in and it's like we're taught, we start with our head. And my helmet came apart in two pieces in my hand. And that was you know, not great, but you know, I was conscious and that's a really good thing. And then I continued to check myself arms, torso. And when I reached up for my legs, that's when I felt the unmistakable arterial blood spurt with every beat in my heart. And at that moment, I'm listening and my team is moving with tactical proficiency, securing the perimeter, like doing everything they're supposed to do. I'm supposed to be the guy yelling out the commands and yet I'm saying nothing and they're doing everything right. And so I'm feeling at that moment safe, which is good. And then also knowing that, okay, this is going to take a while to secure the perimeter before the medic can move up. My femoral artery is cut in half, which it was. And I'm like, I'm going to die. This is it. There's more time is going to go by than is available. And I just sort of gave up. And I was saying goodbye to my wife, my 10-year-old daughter, and you know, they say when you're about to die, your life flashes before your eyes. And that wasn't necessarily my experience. For me, it was sort of like watching a slideshow of all the things I'd left undone. And I don't remember them specifically, except for the last one. The last thing I remember is my daughter, but she's all grown up, just dressed in white head to toe and walking down the aisle to get married without her dad. Well, that's really rough. Mm -hmm. And then I just sort of shook it off. And I was like, Dan, I'm alive. I'm alive. I have to do something to keep it that way. So I just reached my hand and the wound in my thigh, like almost up to my wrist. And I was going to attempt to find the artery and pinch it off like MacGyver, like, like I got it. <laughs> 
it's not really how it went down, but that's sort of how I had it in my head. And I just pressed against the shrapnel that was still lodged in my femur and prayed that it would give enough time for the medic to arrive. And it's like I blinked my eyes and then there was Dan Smee, my medic. And he was just totally staring me right in the eyes, lying to me. He's like, Sergeant Evans, you're going to be all right. And I was like, all right. And then I blinked again and there was a tourniquet on my leg and I blinked again and my alpha team leader, Chris Chillis, was putting an IV in my arm and I blinked again and there was my whole team just putting themselves in harm's way to remove my legs from that vehicle that was still on fire. Then I was on a stretcher in a helicopter, then off to the combat surgical hospital, which was right there at LSA Naconda. It was like maybe a 45 second helicopter ride. And then I got off that bird and they injected me with happy juice right in my IV bag and I was out. And I woke up however long it was after that surgery and combat nurse's face right in mine. And I'll never know her name, but I'll never forget her face or what she said. She said, Sergeant Evans, you're a very lucky man. We managed to repair your femoral artery. And then she gave some accolades to the surgeons. And she said, we had to take your left leg below the knee. We managed to save your right one for now, but you'll probably lose that one too. And she was right. And then right when that pity party started to set in, I just looked against the wall, that surgical tent. And then there was my whole team just waiting for me to wake up. And so like I shrugged off the pity party and they all came over and we told stories, we laughed. You know, army guys, we told horrible offensive jokes to each other about like like returning the roller skates I got for Christmas. You know, all the things, all the jokes and laughed. And we talked about Mike and we all shared some tears. And then I fell asleep and then woke up at Lonsdal Regional Medical Center in Germany, where I'd spend the next seven days surrounded by the impact of the Battle of Fallujah. Mostly Marines, most worse off than I was, most of them 18 and 19 years old. And I was 31 at the time. I was like the old guy in that situation, which now I can't believe I'm calling 31 an old guy. But, <laughs> but that was the reality of it. So seven days with surgery every day, sometimes twice a day, mostly to clean out my wounds and try to save my right leg, which ultimately failed. And then after seven days there, I finally got to Walter Reed Army Medical Center and started that whole two-year, 36-surgery journey of trying to save my leg, learning to walk, taking my leg, you name it. I felt so blessed to have such amazing medical care. But the military medical community gets a lot of bad rap, you know, especially when you're in. But they're so absolutely incredible. And it was my first day when I woke up after my first welcome to Walter Reed surgery that I met one of the founders of Wounded Warrior Project, two of them actually, with a backpack full of comfort items and a promise that whatever I needed, whatever my family needed, that they'd be there for me. And they actually have been every step of the way. I'm so grateful for not only that organization being created and founded, but the people in that organization who actually care so much. They can do anything. Like John Melia, the original founder, could be anything. He's an amazing entrepreneur, brilliant, brilliant man. But he chose to say, no, this is what needs to happen because he was a wounded Marine himself and kind of lived that life. And the backpack was full of everything that he wished he had years ago when he was that person. And the way the organization has evolved and changed and grown and the leadership today and, and what's happening is it just makes me so very grateful that we have such a dedicated group of human beings making a real difference every single day in the lives of warriors and their families. Amen to that. Absolutely. Amen. You know, Dan, one thing that you said really, really hits home for me as far as if there's one important thing that people should get out of this today specifically You said when you were in that situation, the things that were flashing through your mind were basically those unfinished things. And I've heard it before, but you really make it come home to what I've heard before. But they say in life, you never know when that time comes. So I think that message there would be to live every single day like it's your last day because you really never know when your time's going to come and you don't want to have those unfinished things, right? Absolutely. Don't wait to forgive somebody. Don't wait to make the call, the, write the letter. Don't wait to apologize for things that you know you need to apologize for because, well, that person is wrong or they wronged me. No, it's your life. This is what I've learned, especially after becoming a yoga teacher. There's a lot of self-inquiry, like deep work, like excavation. And what I got really clear on is my life, my happiness is 100% up to me. No one else. Every relationship in my life is 100% my responsibility. 
Like my marriage became a casualty of the war. This is before I had the tools that I have now. You know, they say a good marriage is 50-50. Everyone, 50-50. No, a good marriage is 100-100. Absolutely. Giving 100%. When your partner isn't, then you give more. And then that ultimately, there's ebb and flow and it goes back and forth. And then that's how marriages last. And uh, I'm not married now. And this is weird because I don't know if I want to be, right? It's like, <laughs> but it's like every relationship, my relationship with, I have three daughters, my relationship with my girls, it's 100%. When they upset me or do something, because one, I have a pretty big gap. I have a 26-year-old, a 10-year-old. My 26-year-old is the one that was 10 when I was injured. I have a different 10-year-old now who wasn't even born at the time that I got wounded. And I have a three-year-old, also a three-year-old granddaughter from my 26-year-old. So all of those relationships are 100% my responsibility, even when my 10-year-old doesn't clean her room or do her things, when my 26-year-old does the things that 26-year-olds do to their parents in the way that they are. It's a 100% on me to not leave any box unchecked so that if the day came that I wouldn't be here anymore, I feel good about how I left those relationships. And those are really what I think are the most important is our relationships with other people. Yeah, Dan, you know, you really have it put together because I completely agree with that as well. I mean, the 100-100 thing, and you even said it better by saying, you know, when it's not 100-100, that means you need to put in more. I never really thought about that either, but I've known it's not 50-50. And uh, something interesting too is it seems like we have some stuff in common because my oldest is 30, my youngest is 13, and then I've got some more in between. And I also joined right out of high school. So it's an interesting dynamic when there's that age difference, fun stuff there. Exactly. We can have a nice chat about that offline. Yeah, yeah, we should. So transition from the military for you, Dan, was very unexpected and it had to be, you know, really incredibly hard. And you talked about your time at Walter Reed and within that first few days, getting that backpack from Wounded Warrior Project. And in a way, that's kind of where the journey started. But you didn't go directly to them after you got out of Walter Reed. I saw that you had a little stint there where you worked with the PGA Tour. Can you tell me about that? That sounds interesting. Oh, absolutely. It was such a great time. So, so much fun. It's like I had this series of dream jobs. I was in the army, right? And then after that, I got out, went to college, stayed in the guard. My first job, I was a stockbroker. And then what I thought that was great. I grew up really poor in Baltimore. So like the word stockbroker was like this, all oh, this sort of like, whoa, that's a career that's like unreachable. And then turned out it's not that hard. And then I went into pharmaceutical sales and I was making a really great living and all the time still in the guard and then got redeployed. And then I was an infantry squad leader in combat. Doesn't get better than that, in my opinion. And then I went back to pharmaceutical sales after two years of recovery. And then, you know, I went back into that business and I was like, no offense, but this is the dumbest job in the whole world. I'm getting paid a ridiculous amount of money to see people who don't really want to see me and then try to influence their decisions. And then in that time after Walter Reed, I was very connected to golf. Like golf for me was something that was, it was my yoga before I had yoga. It was the place I can go out on some of the most beautiful real estate in the world and then forget about all the things that were like cycling through my mind and just focus on this little white ball, putting it in the hole in as few strokes as possible. And that was a break from the thinking and cycle of, of everything that went wrong in combat, everything I saw, everything I did, like all the guilt, all the remorse, all the regret, all the anxiety, like it just got to be put on the shelf and just focus. And so in that, I got to meet some really great people from the PGA Tour. And then I moved to Jacksonville, Florida. I live in Ponte Vedra Beach, Florida now. At the same time, when the Warrior Project was moving their headquarters to Jacksonville, and at the same time, the PGA Tour was a huge donor for Wounded Warrior Project. And then so in that little circle, there was an opportunity that opened up to help the PGA Tour lead their military appreciation initiative. So I got to go in and help create all of their give back programs, the Wounded Warrior Project for the PGA Tour to the veteran community, including raising millions of dollars through golf tournaments from these pros for Wounded Warrior Project. And that was an incredible amount of fun. These initiatives still happen today. So at every PGA Tour tournament, there's free admission for all veterans and their families. Uh, and a lot of them, there are free hospitality, like world-class hospitality, that's air-conditioned in the middle, like have a great view of the golf, free food and beverage inside. 
And that's all through the time that I got to spend at the PGA Tour when they did a great job of listening, like what's needed. And just for the record, I wanted to work at Wounded Warrior Project. They didn't want to hire me. <laughs> Not that they didn't want to. They didn't have the budget. They were still spending all their money on delivering programs and they didn't have the money to increase their headcount. And then right around after a couple of years working at the tour, they got a little more successful with fundraising and they were scaling up and growing. And then I had an opportunity to go in and I started in strategic partnerships and then went to the director of major gifts. So asking people for, I have no problem asking for money for things that I think are very valuable. And then, so I got to do that and then went on to lead the event universe. So as the EVP of events for Wounded Warrior Project, helping with all their fundraising events, like the Courage Awards Benefit Dinner and all of their signature events. It was so much fun. And then ultimately, I was doing a lot of storytelling, doing a lot of speaking for the organization. And then I had this moment where I said, look, I am not the only story. So then I focused my energy, created and this is what I love about Wounded Warrior Project, at least you know, when I was working inside the organization every day, is I got heard when I said, I want to not do what I'm doing because anybody could do this. I want to go find other people that want to tell their story and don't know how, and then I can help them. And then we created what's now called the Warrior Speak Program, where I got to help identify, recruit, and train our organization's spokespeople, as well as our national campaign team. And that has been a huge blessing for me because me sharing my story and being able to talk about things as an as lived experience, like really smelling it, feeling it, tasting it every time I tell my story has actually allowed me to heal from it. To say that, yeah, like all those horrible things happen and I'm still alive and have this great life and this beautiful family. And so it doesn't have to sting as bad. And I get to help other people have that same sort of relief. And it's been so powerful. We've trained hundreds of warriors. And some family members and caregivers to share their story in such a powerful way that is also healing for them. It's been beautiful. That's really awesome. And, you know, I knew a lot about Wounded Warrior Project already, but I really didn't know about the speaking part until coming in contact with you. So that's very interesting. And I want to talk about all their programs today. But first, I wanted to say I'm really a huge fan of Wounded Warrior Project. I know a few people that work there here in Florida, either at the headquarters in Jacksonville or at the office in Tampa. I've actually visited the office in Tampa when they hosted IVMF's Onward to Opportunity program. I got mm. to attend the program and they hosted it. So we got to go into the facility there. And, you know, that was really awesome. So obviously you're a big fan because of everything that you've been through and in these different positions and, and all the accomplishments, I would say, that you've made there mm. and different levels of doing things to help people and to help veterans but what I wanted to mention and give you some acknowledgement for is even before you started working there, you received their highest award, which is called the George C. Lang Award for Courage. Now, I would really like to hear about that and how that came about. Yeah, it remains my most significant honor. You know, I got all the salad from the military and was treated really well and fairly in that regard. But what I love about the George C. Lang Award for Courage is one, who George Lang was. He was a Congressional Medal of Honor recipient from Vietnam. He spent his remaining days on the planet in a wheelchair visiting the warriors at Walter Reed and just saying like, hey, you're going to be okay. It's going to be fine. Just such a powerful, such an amazing man um, who fortunately I got the opportunity to meet. And um, he's no longer with us, but I'm still connected to his family, which they're amazing people. And so I love that the fact that Wounded Warrior Project's highest award is named after him, his namesake. And the reason it's my highest honor is because it's an award that is you're nominated by your peers. And the people inside of Wounded Warrior Project, they take their time and do a thorough search and people get nominated and they're and reviewed. And so the fact that it was the people that are my buddies, my peers, some people that I don't even know who nominated me and approved. And so the award is given by not one person, it's given by the whole collective. That for me makes it just right in the heartstrings. And it's just, it's right in my office, just straight on top of my bookcase. I see it every single day. It is a reminder that I'm not alone. That's really very, very powerful. Pretty amazing. You know, the thing about the Wounded Warrior Project is I think really how much they care about people and the veterans. And sometimes people don't quite realize how things like Wounded Warrior Project 
are equivalent to the family that we have while we're in the military and while we're serving. And that when they get out of the military, they don't have to be alone and there is a family for them. And that's one of the biggest things I think Wounded Warrior Project is trying to accomplish is to make sure there's no more veteran suicide, that they don't feel alone, that they don't feel like they don't have a family, that they don't feel like no one understands and they're there for them. I know that there's a lot that they do. And this is one of the biggest things for me. This is why I wanted to talk about Wounded Warrior Project. It's because people only understand a fragment of what they do. I think basically, Dan, everyone knows about how Wounded Warrior Project gets the wounded warriors out of their house and into the community. They interact with each other. They go to amazing events. But the thing is, is that there's so much more to what they do. What are the requirements to be part of the Wounded Warrior Program? To be part of Wounded Warrior Project, to be what we call alumni, and alumni is different than membership. So a lot of veterans organizations have a membership, and membership implies there's dues. It means you have to open your wallet and pay something to get their services. And Wounded Warrior Project is a firm believer that you've paid all your dues already, and so now you're just alumni. Well, I won't say just, but now you're alumni. And that means that you'll never have to open your wallet for a single program or services provided ever, period which is very, very powerful and eliminates every barrier to access for all people. And so to be eligible, you have to be a 9-11 generation. means you had to be in service on September 11th, 2001 or later, and then wounded, ill, or injured. So there's no real discrepancy or comparison on how you became service-connected disabled, whether it was a combat wound, whether you were injured in training, or perhaps you got a nasty disease, MS, or cancer, you're eligible for Wounded Warrior Project programs and services. Some programs are combat specific. They're combat programs. So those you'd have to obviously have served in combat, but the majority of the programs and services are open to all 9-11 generation veterans and family members and caregivers. Awesome. So that's great. There's a lot of programs out there that only serve veterans and not the families. And I really even love the ones more that do serve the families. I want to talk about all the amazing programs and we're going to hit these one at a time. So let's start with the one that I think is the most well-known, which I believe is the veteran outreach program where the veterans get to meet at events and enjoy some great activities. Could you tell us about that one? The alumni network and all the outreach programs are so powerful. You know, we look back at the greatest generation, let's say World War II, everyone served. Whether you were in uniform or not, you had to ration your food and ration things and sell war bonds. It was a nationwide effort, period. No one was unaffected. This generation is completely different. There's a very small few who are affected and the rest of people, I don't mean this in a negative way, but they're oblivious. They don't have any skin in the game and they see it on the news and now they don't even see it anymore on the news. No, it's still happening. In World War II, you returned home, the front porches of every house were full of gatherings of veterans. And there was this sort of kindred spirit of connection and service that happened everywhere. And that's just not the case today. So the outreach program, the alumni program is the front porch for this generation of veteran. That there's our Wounded Warrior Project programs and our alumni team brings people together because they might be completely alone and isolated where they are. When I went back home after being deployed and being hurt and my recovery at Walter Reed, I went to Northern California, one of the most beautiful places in the world in Sonoma County, and I felt like I was the only person on the planet because I had nothing in common with anyone around me, and no one around me had anything in common with me. And so Wounded Warrior Project for me was like anytime I got to come and be a part of a program, I couldn't wait because it's like I get to be around people like me that understand what I've been through, understand what I've seen, done, and heard. I mean, it's probably the most important thing Wounded Warrior Project does because you know, the logo is so specific. It's one warrior carrying another. And that's the way all the programs of Wounded Warrior Project are made. It's like, yeah, Wounded Warrior Project is the container. We organize the whole teams. They organize, they create these events. And what happens, you just bring warriors together and then it unfolds in such a beautiful way. The alumni network and the outreach program for Wounded Warrior Project, I really feel is the backbone of the organization because that is how we recruit. That's how we find the people who haven't been served and aren't being served right now. They turn over the rocks and look for people because a lot of people aren't saying, 
well, I need help. And a lot of people still, and it still blows my mind, they feel like Wounded Warrior Project's not for me because I'm not wounded. Like I have all my body parts, right? And I'm like, yeah, but how are you sleeping? I don't sleep well at all. Are you physically active? No, I really can't get myself off the couch. And are you employed the way you want to be? Like, no, I'm like really unhappy in my career. I'm good. Like I don't have legs. I'm good. Actually, this is for you right now. You don't have to be missing body parts. You just have to understand that you're not alone and that the services and programs are for all of us, not just one group or another. And I sleep like a baby at night. And the invisible wounds of war for me healed completely. And that took a decade. And where my physical wounds were healed in a couple of years. So when I look at the more severe wounds out there, it's the ones you don't see. That's such a good point. And see, this is actually where I think the break is that people don't understand that there's so much more that Wounded Warrior Project does. Because we talked about the part where people come together. You know, they feel like there's a family, a unit. They got the camaraderie. They go together different places. They do different things. But then there's so much more. So when you're talking about those injuries, you know, whether they're physical or now you're talking about the invisible ones that people can't see, there's more programs. And I saw the next one I want to talk about is the Combat Stress Recovery Program slash Project Odyssey and the Warrior Care Network. Those three all seem to go together. Could you talk about that? Innovation is at the core of what Wounded Warrior Project is. It's actually one of the core values, fun, integrity, loyalty, innovation, and service. And Wounded Warrior Project has always been on the forefront because they have, again, going back to the people, people working for the organization in the early days, listening to what's needed. You know, it started out as a benefit service and then adaptive sports. And then in the doing and listening of that, it's like, okay, it's actually what we're seeing is it's the invisible wounds that actually need the most attention. And then so in the Combat Stress Recovery Program, they created Project Odyssey, which is these intense a few days to week-long programs where they put warriors in challenging situations and they have peer mentors that are involved and they have clinical advisors that come pro bono and kind of hang out and anybody needs to talk to a professional. Like it's, it's all there. People get to share and grow and learn together how to heal and learn to cope with what's happening. They learn tools to really integrate into their lives when these invisible wounds start to surface, now they have some tools to deploy to kind of meet that new enemy where it is and to kind of dismantle it before it takes over. Such a powerful program. And the Warrior Care Network, like this one deserves all the attention in the world. It's never happened before. It's never happened. It's one of the most amazing programs. So four different academic medical institutions around the country are participating in this. And so they're skin in the game both. The academic medical institutions are raising money to support their own programs. Wounded Warrior Project is contributing money. And because Wounded Warrior Project was the genesis of this collaboration and put a lot of resources and team and talent behind developing it. So there's Emory in Atlanta, Mass General, so it connected to Harvard up in the Boston, Massachusetts area, Rush Medical in Chicago, and UCLA Medical Center out in California all have these intensive programs. They're two to three weeks long and it's holistic care for the veteran. Everything from clinical and balancing like what their prescriptions are because, you know, I'm not going to knock the VA or really anyone. I don't, I'm not in the business of knocking anyone. But sometimes warriors find themselves on care regimens, especially prescription that aren't actually good for them. And so they kind of go through all of that, titrate down or up, whatever they need, get that sort of where it needs to be. And then start looking at the whole body, their physicality, are they exercising, yoga, tai chi, meditation, like all these different alternative therapies that actually create something that's sustainable for these warriors. And so each individual program at those four centers have to share and collaborate in you know, their best practices, what works and what doesn't work. And typically that doesn't happen. In the academic world, this is my research. It's all mine. You can't have it. No, 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 no. No, absolutely, you have to. We don't want to see whose program is better. We want all programs to be the very best they possibly can be because what's at stake is the lives of these warriors and their families. Suicide is still so, it's omnipresent, it's everywhere. And we've had enough, like enough is enough. If we're not doing everything we possibly can, then we're not doing enough. And so Wounded Warrior Project has put hundreds of millions of dollars in the game on this, as well as these four institutions. And it is a groundbreaking, 
wildly successful program to help warriors cope with and then hopefully ultimately heal from combat stress-related challenges. So that is it right there. That is where everything goes above and beyond, just coming and meeting and having fun and doing different events together. You Mm -hmm. said that gets them in the door. And then there's so much more that they can take advantage of that can actually help heal them mentally and get them back in a place where they need to be. They can be productive. They can be successful. It's all possible. And all they got to do is come and participate. So I think it's amazing. What you're saying is just incredible. I had no idea that that network was together and it was so big and that there was such uh, big players in making all that happen. And, and basically, you know, you're talking all across the country. So amazing that that, that all came together. The next program I, I like to talk about is uh, I saw, you know, there's an independence program. Could you talk about that one? Yeah. The independence program is for our most severely wounded warriors and their families. People may not think of this. People today, the caregivers, so the parents, the spouses of the severely injured, they're like, I'm not going to allow my warrior, my son, my daughter, my husband, my wife to go into this institution where they're going to get substandard care. I'm going to take care of that person. And so they drop everything and they take care of them by themselves. No training a lot of times. They're just doing it because they love that person so much, providing them the best possible scenario to live and hopefully grow and hopefully heal as much as they can. And it's so hard to do that alone. But the independence program is for those most severely injured warriors and their families to actually bring in the care, the resources to help that warrior find as much independence as they're able to find. And that program is changing the lives, not only the warriors, because it's really up-leveling their standard of care. It's taking them beyond what even their parents and loved ones can do and like raising that up a notch because they're still in the home and they're still being cared for and loved by those people that love them so much, but bringing in the experts and the rehabilitative tools and resources to actually provide them a level of independence that they never believed was possible. And in that, the caregiver is getting a new level of freedom that they didn't think was possible but while still actively caring for their warrior. So it's such a profound program that is, I feel one of the best stories that come out of what Wounded Warrior Project does, I think come from Warrior Care Network, like we talked about, and the independence program, because it is very high touch, very high tech, and it costs a lot. It's a lot of resources, and Wounded Warrior Project is very wisely spending the donor dollars on these programs that have the biggest impact. Well, all the programs have huge impact, And some of them just a little more significantly when you look at the wholeness of the warrior more than others. And the great thing about it, I think, is, you know, who better to take care of someone than someone who loves them, basically. And, you know, the ability that's there then to help educate them. Like you said, people trying to do it on their own with no training is not really maybe going to be that successful, even though they're trying to do the best that they can. But I think that this program is really top notch in making sure that they do get the very best care. So that's amazing there. And then they round it out, really, I would say, at Wounded Warrior Project, because we talked about the Combat Stress Recovery Program, the Warrior Care Network, Independence Program, but then they have a whole kind of layer of physical health and wellness, just of, you know, this is how you should live your life, and, and here's the resources to go learn and find out all this information, almost as if you're talking to your doctor's office and they're giving you advice. You know what I mean? Absolutely. The physical health and wellness programs, I love them the most because I really believe in my heart and soul, if you want to heal mentally, you've got to heal physically. And I don't mean like mend the wound or repair the bone or fuse the spine or whatever's needed. That, yeah, that's a given. You have to move your body. You have to take care of your physical body because the mind-body connection, it's integrated. It's all of it. You're not going to be as effective dealing with the invisible wounds of war, the combat stress recovery side of it, if your physical body isn't feeling as good as it can be. And yeah, we're all limited in some way, whether it's age or it's some sort of physical, like I'm physically disabled. I lost both legs below the knee. I have back issues. I have shoulder issues. I have a lot of things, but it doesn't stop me from practicing yoga every day. It doesn't stop me from sitting in meditation. It doesn't stop me from participating in sports because moving your body 30 minutes every day, every single day is paramount to be actually at your highest level of recovery. So Wounded Warrior Project, I think one of the most powerful things they do that's recognized all over the place, 
because we're this expert, the repository of information. It's the annual survey that Wounded Warrior Project does every year. They survey all 170,000 alumni and say, hey, how are you doing in these areas? Mental health, physical health, sleep. So many questions that I take this survey every year. It takes a significant amount of time. It's very thorough. It's very detailed. And what happens is you get this body of research that is unparalleled anywhere, even inside the DOD. And so inside of this research, you have this snapshot of like what is needed in the veteran community right now. The top of the list is physical health. BMI, I forgot the percentage, but it's a very high percentage. Over 70% are either obese or morbidly obese. Overweight, obese, morbidly obese in this current generation of warrior and their families. And it's not okay. And then sleep. So body mass and sleep. Yeah. So if you're not exercising, moving your body, then your energy level is fluctuating. If you're not eating right, then your energy level is all over the place. You're not going to sleep. You're not going to wake up when you want to. You're not going to be able to go to bed when you want to. You're not going to feel as good as you can. So the physical health and wellness program is really touching in on the hot buttons for this generation. It's like, hey, you have to eat well if you want to feel well. You have to move your body if you want to feel the best that you can. And so these programs are so powerful. And the interruption of this whole quarantine COVID crisis is not keeping where they're still delivering this content, having at-home challenges, all this virtual content, you know, all of their program areas, because it's more important now than ever to keep warriors engaged. And so Wounded Warrior Project with innovation as an actual core value, they're continuing to innovate to still deliver super quality programs to warriors and their families, even if it's virtual. And a lot of that is in the physical health and wellness space. Excellent. Excellent. So Dan, now the next one that I want to talk about is actually my favorite because when it comes to working with veterans, helping veterans, I'm in the area of expertise where I'm helping them try to find a job or start a business and all that sort of thing. And so for me, the Warriors to Work program is just awesome and amazing. And what they're trying to do there to, you know, help veterans to be employed at a great companies that are actually looking for veterans and stuff like that. So could you talk about the Warriors to Work program? Absolutely. Warriors to Work is such a powerful program because as a warrior, as a human being, I think feeling valuable and productive is at the center of how you feel. And so if you transition from the military, especially if you're wounded, ill, and injured, and you're trying to make your way and, and maybe you've tried and failed to go back into the workforce for whatever reason, is Warriors to Work program is there to really help kind of two different lenses is to help prepare that warrior in all ways to be ready to reintegrate into the civilian workforce. And then in the other half is really partnering with organizations who are not only veteran friendly, but they actually recognize that veterans have this incredible potential to be some of the most valuable employees on the planet. And they might need, depending on their varying level of disability or illness, they might need some special accommodation. So it's working with the employers to understand, okay, here's what you need to do to be prepared to integrate this veteran community into your organization. And hey, warrior, here's what you need to be prepared for. And then it sort of sets up this perfect opportunity for success in transition, not only on the warrior side, but the employer side to make sure that the warriors aren't just getting jobs, they're starting meaningful careers. And so that level of pride, you know, it's very hard to match the level of pride when you don a uniform. When that's either taken away or voluntarily hung up, filling the gap for that's very difficult. And so Wounded Warrior Project and the Warrior Support Team were making that the highest likelihood of success possible. So powerful. Yeah. And with the fact that they know those companies are interested in hiring veterans, I think the great part is, is when someone's looking for a new career, they don't want to end up in a situation. I've been in it myself, transitioning out of the military and finding that job that's not a fit. So when you have someone that's got your back, they can make sure that you're going to be a culture fit for this company. And here's the reasons why, and we can introduce you and just kind of smooth that way. It's an icebreaker and it's just so amazingly helpful to all the veterans or spouses that might be looking for work that can participate in that program. So there's a couple left that I want to talk about. One is the soldier ride. Can you talk about that? I can talk about this all day. Soldier ride is such a powerful program because it's sort of like this merging of 
almost all the programs. It's physical because you're going to ride a bicycle and it's adaptive because we have these amazing bike techs that can configure a bike for anyone, any disability, they can make it happen. I've seen miracles on these rides, even from a technology standpoint of getting warriors fitted to bikes, whether they're on their own power or it's a tandem situation, whether you're blind, whether you're complete quadriplegic, doesn't matter. We're going to get you out. Wow. And it is this brotherhood, sisterhood, camaraderie that comes together. It's so powerful because they're multi-day events. It's amazing to see everybody come in the first day. And there's a lot of like, what am I doing here? What's happening? And the last day is like, I don't want to leave this brand new family that I've created. They're on this journey together that's physical, that's supportive, and because they're suffering. There's nothing like shared suffering to bring people together. And when you're riding a bike for 30 miles or 50 miles, and then you haven't moved your body in that way in a long time, it's a big deal. And then, by the way, we're going to do it again tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Dan, it sounds like you've participated in this event yourself. So many times. And actually, when I was working with Wounded Warrior Project in the events world, I actually was the interim soldier ride director for about a year while we were recruiting the right candidates. And it was so much fun. And I miss it incredibly. It's such a powerful program and so wildly popular. You know, once somebody goes on it one time, they're the first to sign up to try to go again. And we're just trying to make it available for everyone. But it's such a wildly successful program and so powerful because especially when you take the day one and then the last day, the comparison between the two, they're all brand new people. They're brand new versions of themselves ready to go back and be amazing at the rest of their life. So, so much fun. That's really, really pretty awesome. So the last one, Dan, I think this probably falls right into your category because you're the director of Warriors Speak. And the last program that I'm aware of, and if I miss anything, be sure to let me know, but this one is Wounded Warriors Project Talk. Tell me about that. Talk is a really great, it's a telephonic program. Another one that's like Warriors to Work, not interrupted by the current state of things in the world. And it's a ongoing telephonic relationship that people have with someone at Wounded Warrior Project that is there to mentor, coach, give advice, be a rock, not clinical. Some of them are licensed clinicians, but they're not operating in that role. Their role is peer, friend, mentor, confidant. A lot of our warriors around the country and even expats are isolated and they don't have access to the front porch and they can't make it out to all of the Wounded Warrior Project programs. But what they can have is a relationship with someone on the other end of the phone that's going to help hold them accountable for their goals help hold them just period when they need it and help lift them up and to move forward and continue to evolve and grow and learn. And it's such a great program. And again, the people that are on the other end of the phone talking to the warriors, I mean, they're saints. The way that they give and give and give all day, day in and day out is just all inspiring for me. And it's a program I think that's underutilized. I think if more people knew about it, I think more people would take advantage of it. And that program could grow and scale pretty easily. So if you're a warrior out there and you're listening and you're feeling isolated, just reach out. There is a way. There is a way to get involved and stay connected no matter where you are. And now with the way things are going and people having to stay home, this is the most important time for that program. So they might be getting busier already, but if not, hopefully this will allow them to get more busy because we want people to know about it. So did I miss anything, Dan? There's one. And it was the first one, the benefits program. Collectively, Warriors Entitled to Benefits as you separate. And that's actually how Wounded Warrior Project was founded. Wounded Warrior Project was founded because... Traditionally, there was a huge gap between the time you ended your time in service and then got your benefits all figured out. And in that gap was a lot of frustration and compiling paperwork. And then so the idea was, well, what if we just get it all together before they separate and have this seamless transition from active duty to the day you leave active duty, your benefits with VA start. And so that was the original intent. And then came adaptive sports, which is now part of the PHMW physical health and wellness program. But the benefits service has collectively raised, I don't even know what the current data is, but a billion dollars in back pay benefits for warriors and their families. And that, talk about like financial impact and being set up for success. The team at Wonder Warrior Project who does benefits are second to none. 
and they're geniuses when it comes to like really helping warriors navigate that and make sure they're getting everything that they're entitled to. Yeah, I don't want to leave that one off the table. It's one of those ones that's always running, always going, and it doesn't get a lot of spotlight attention because it's pretty common. And the Wounded Warrior Project team is literally the best on the planet. Well, it's funny, I guess that one, I'm so glad that you brought it up because it's the one that, like you said, it kind of runs behind the scenes and it's always happening. But the thing about it is, is that it's one of the behind the scenes things. But I know veterans, spouses, anybody that might be in the Wounded Warrior program, I think that we could all agree that doing paperwork is something that people just hate to do. So you got to bless those people for being able to do that and help us with that. Amen. And they are literally the best at what they do. So Dan, now I wanted to spend just a little time talking about you too, because I did a lot of research before we talked and you mentioned yoga and I have seen you doing yoga things that are absolutely amazing. So can you just talk about your yoga journey? How did that even happen? Such a crazy story. So I like, if you would have told me years ago that I was going to be a yoga teacher, I thought you were crazy. But it was one of those times, it's been almost a decade since I got hurt, and I had just had my 36th surgery, and I was home alone, and I was divorced, and my 10-year-old when I got hurt was now 18, and in the Army herself, so she was out of the house. I shared a three-year-old at the time with my ex-wife, two and a half, and I just had a surgery in my right leg, so I couldn't wear one of my prosthetics. So I was at home recovering, hopping around on crutches and one leg. I couldn't take care of a two, two and a half year old. So I was alone and I was working at Wounded Warrior Project at the time and I was leading this big team. And because of the Family Medical Leave Act, I wasn't allowed to answer email or call my team. So I was completely alone. And I used to cope with the invisible wounds of war. I can go ride a bike. I could climb a mountain. I climbed Kilimanjaro in 2010, and yeah, I could do something physically, hike, ride a bike, play golf, which was like my thing. But now without wearing that leg and still healing from surgery, I couldn't do the things I could do to cope with the invisible wounds of war. And then so being home, they started to really resurface. And then I couldn't sleep at night. And then when I could sleep, I'd wake up with nightmares. So then I would just take a handful of Benadryl and chase it down with a bunch of gulps of whiskey and hoping I wouldn't wake up the next morning. And I wasn't suicidal, but I finally, for the first time at that point, understood how it happened. Before then, like the 22 a day and all the stats that were out, I didn't get it because I was like, oh, there's something you can do. Just here's an idea. Don't do that. And it's so profound when I finally got to that point where I was like, if I had to be like this for like an indefinite amount of time, I'd be one of the 22. But I knew that in eight weeks, I was going to get my leg back and then I would go back to business as usual. So I had this light at the end of the tunnel, but I was suffering in the moment. And I didn't want to call Wounded Warrior Project and tell them because I was in the organization every day and I felt that they would go overboard. Like I'd be whisked away to some underground treatment facility in Tibet. <laughs> so I was like, no, 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 no. I'm not, I didn't even raise the flag to them. I just reached out to friends and a friend of mine happened to be a yoga teacher. And I'm telling her everything that's happening and, you know, for the sharing, all the things that were brand new for me, tears and snot and the whole thing. After I was saying everything that was going on, I was like finally kind of letting it all out like a catharsis. She just said on the other end of the phone, she was like, Dan, you need some yoga in your life. I was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I was so mad. <laughs> Pete, like, you know, I was so mad. Cause I was like, wait, I don't own spandex. Like, wait, I don't have a man bun. Like a whole, like I had this idea of what yoga was and it was not for me. You know, there were chances to do yoga before then. I was always like, no, I'm a man. Like, I'm not going to do that. And then she goes, okay. She recognized how much of a no I was for it. And she said, what about meditation? And I had tried to meditate before. I read it in Steve Jobs book and that was beneficial for him and creativity. And I, was, and I tried and failed because I just quote unquote, couldn't do it. And then she said, maybe you're doing it wrong. So can I just show you? And then, so she came over and she showed me that and taught me that meditation wasn't, I used to think you have to be like empty and like kind of float around in this experience of like nothingness. And she informed me rightfully so that no meditation is all about being completely present, feeling everything, hearing everything, and just not thinking about it, just being in the experience of what's happening right now. And uh, in a complete state of awareness, not disconnection, but complete connection. And then I got it. And then I started meditating every day 
sometimes twice a day, you know, I wasn't perfect at it, but I got relief and the dreams, the nightmares stopped happening and I was able to sleep a little better. And by the end of my eight week recovery, I was actually in a much better state and I got my leg back and I went back to work and I made the mistake of calling my friend. Her name's Anna. And I called Anna and I said, Hey, thank you for suggesting this meditation. It's been so powerful for me and I'm grateful. And so she did like what any good friend would do. Like, oh, so this weird hippie Eastern stuff worked for you, right? And I was like, yes, yes. And she goes, I think you owe me some yoga. And I couldn't get out of it. it. So I agreed to three private lessons. And first one was terrible, absolutely terrible. I was was, was like, why is it so hot in here? And she's telling me how to stand. And I'm still healing too. I had my prosthetic arm, but I was still healing. So it was like hard for me to do the poses and there was pain involved and it was just hot. They had the heat up so high and I was like, what is, what's happening? And I'm learning, you know, how to put my body into true north alignment. And it was like fine, but it was having a miserable experience. And I remember leaving that first lesson and she was saying these stupid things. She was saying like, root down to rise up. I'm like, what does that even mean? <laughs> like, like when I was getting unstable, you know, I'm kind of like trying to find myself and find these yoga poses she was teaching me. And she's like, press your feet into the floor. <laughs> right? <And> I'm, like, <laughs> right? I'm like, I'm like, say feet one more time and watch what happens. It was so mad. Right. But it was, it was all in jest. I wasn't actually uh, mad at her, but I was very, very frustrated. This is like the sort of like a, if road rage could be converted to yoga rage, that's what was happening. And I remember leaving that lesson. I'm driving home. I was like, well, I checked the box. Yoga's not for me. And then she called that night to schedule the next lesson. And then right about the time I was going to tell her exactly where to put that next lesson, I remembered that I committed to three. And a commitment is a commitment, period. And so I reluctantly went, it was like weeks later to the second one. And it was still terrible. It was still sweaty. It was still hot. I was still in a little bit of pain. And she was still saying those root down to rise up weird ethereal things. And then I got so frustrated, so frustrated. I said, can I just do this with my legs off? She looked at me. Her eyes were saying no. Because what am I going to tell you to do with your feet? Because my body was going to be in a completely different state. And then, but her mouth said, yes. So I just took my legs off. I threw them to the side and she's looking at me, probably wondering what to tell me to do next. But in my mind, I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I was so angry and so um, frustrated to the point of like, I'm just going to actually do it. Everything she says, I'm just surrendering to this weirdness and I'm going to root down to rise up. What does that even mean? So in my head, I chose, I'm going to do this warrior one pose because I'm a warrior. I know what this is supposed to look like and how's it going to be on my knees. So I spread my legs apart on my mat and I just said, okay, root down was it mean. So I just visualized roots growing from what was left in my legs into the ground. And then in the warrior one, you lift your arms up over your head. And I was like, okay, so that's rise up. And when I did that, and Pete is so weird still to say, but I get it. Well, I'm going to clarify it by saying like, I'm a dude. I shoot guns. I eat meat. Like I'm just a dude. I'm the same dude I was when I was in uniform. And I, as I am today, just with a whole different tool set and some knowledge, wisdom. But in that moment, the earth, the actual planet sent, I feel like delivered this bolt of energetic lightning into my body from the earth up and it lit me up from the inside out. And I was like on fire. You know, when I took my legs off, it's up to that point, nobody got to see with my legs off, like my doctors, my kids, my spouse. That's really it because I was ashamed of what used to be like my best feature. It was now like gone. And then I got prosthetics and they were cool, but nobody got to see what was under there. The scars, the atrophy, like your legs just shrink up where there's no more ability to use the muscles. And so there's a lot of shame in just even being seen that way. And now I'm small. I'm on my knees. I'm a small man on the mat because my height is gone. And so I'm feeling vulnerable. I'm feeling insignificant. But in that moment, I felt 10 feet tall and more powerful than I've ever felt in my whole life. And uh, I don't know what it was specifically, but it was very real. And I just, tears were coming out of my eyes and I just, just like so alive in that moment. And poor Anna is behind me and she's probably wondering still, what am I going to tell them to do with this feet? She has no idea I'm having this breakthrough moment of my whole life on a freaking yoga mat. And then I was committed. I was like, I'm going to learn all I can. And by my third lesson, 
I was enrolled to go to teacher training with my teacher, now a guy named Baron Baptiste. And so now five years later and 1600 hours of yoga teacher training later, I'm a tier three certified Baptiste yoga influencer. And I get to lead programs and create and lead teacher trainings and help other teachers learn to teach at new levels. It's sort of like woke up in me, this natural teacher. When I was in the military, I was a pretty proficient trainer. Like, hey, here's how you use this piece of equipment. And now it's like I have this thing, this concept, this practice to teach that actually heals people and changes lives. And it's not some flowery, lift your heart to the universe, mother. Like that exists out there. <laughs> it does. But Baptiste yoga that I practice is very essential language, very powerful, very physical, and has a solid methodology that I apply in my whole life every day about like, be a yes, give up what you must, come from your ready now. Like these sort of little words of wisdom that are great on a yoga mat and for your whole life. And so I'm so grateful for my weird yoga teacher friend to like not give up on me. And you know what? I want everybody to know, because I think this is really important too, is that you just didn't embrace yoga, give it a try to, you know, help you get you out of that place where you were at, but you became a teacher. And I saw videos, I, like I said, I researched you and you are literally teaching hundreds of people and helping hundreds of people, maybe even more. I mean, that was a big giant crowd. It could have been thousands of people. Very, very incredible. Very, very impressed with that whole thing. And I just think it's amazing that you're using that to help others to get to that same place to feel as good as you feel now. And on the manly side of things, I just want to say this for all those other people out there, that some of those videos that I saw you in where you're teaching yoga, it almost sounded just a little bit like you were a drill instructor. So you haven't lost anything. <laughs> it's true. And some of those videos are pretty old. I'm like, I'm like, I used to teach exactly like a drill sergeant. Bam, like right in, like, ah, like yell at them. And now it's the same. It's not a lot different, but there's a lot more, there's a quality of love in there too. Is, you know, ultimately, I think when we love each other, we're at our best. In the military, you know, in manliness, it's, it's better now, but there is a time where it's, like, it's not okay to tell another bro that you love them. And now it doesn't stop. Like, no, I, I love you. And then you are giving up on yourself. And I love you enough to not let you give up on yourself. Then the drill sergeant sort of comes out because I'm using the tools that work and um, helping people not give up. Because when they're on the other side, because the practice that I teach is pretty challenging. Baptist yoga, period. It's pretty challenging. And then so on the other side of them not giving up on themselves is them realizing they're more powerful than they thought they were. And then in that realization, then it opens up a whole new possibility of like, okay, maybe I don't have to sit on the couch all day and play video games. And not, there's nothing wrong with video games, but there's something wrong with sitting on the couch all day. Right, absolutely. I'm going to continue to just to follow that whole thing because it is just absolutely amazing of all the people's lives that you are affecting. And so one of the last things I want to talk about here before I have to let you go, because I know you've got more things to probably do than just sit here and talk to me all day. And I think I could talk to you all day. Tell me about the Warrior Spirit Retreat and the dream that you have for up near St. Augustine. Absolutely. I started a really small nonprofit as I'm the biggest donor to it. I bring warriors together and I have a curriculum focused on yoga, mindfulness, and meditation. But it's framed around, Pete, if I did yoga retreats for warriors, nobody would show up, right? So it's like, I really wanted to get it. So we take the principles of yoga, mindfulness, and meditation, and we practice every day and twice a day. It's the morning and the night. And in the middle of the day, we focus on taking the lessons from the yoga mat and from meditation into things that they're going to do again for sure. Horsemanship, golf, and nature. So being outside, like moving their bodies in that way, whether it's a hike or it's a climb or something physical like fly fishing, fishing, horsemanship, specifically I show cutting horses. So it's a very disciplined animal, very purpose-built, purpose-bred animal that works with cows. So it's also out in nature with other life. And there's so much research on equine therapy and how horses are so good for the invisible wounds of war. So it's sort of like a tandem operation there. And then golf, because like we talked about that complete the attention to the ball is so a disruption to the thoughts that are in your head. But actually versus just doing those things, it's actually intentionally bringing forth the methodology of Baptist yoga and the principles that we're learning into those practices. So while they may not show up to their yoga studio again, they will go to a golf course again. 
And while they might not be doing warrior one, they will put the correct body position alignment and thought and mentality and presence into what they're doing versus being distracted. And one, it's going to make them a better golfer and also feel better at the end of the round versus just being a drinking competition and see how far you can smash the ball. And the same thing with horsemanship and nature. And it all comes back to connection and wholeness. And so I want to build ultimately a property and buy a property in St. Augustine that's absolutely perfect. There's a discrepancy on what they want to sell it for and what it's actually worth. So we're in that sort of mix back and forth now. But in the meantime, I'm leading retreats at different properties around the country. Same curriculum, same outcome. I'm actually spending less of the organization's money. So it's perfect. And I have really great partners in that as well and volunteers that help me make that happen just a few times a year. But maybe one day it'll be a year-round possibility with this retreat property. But in the meantime, just a few times a year with a cohort of warriors, really changing the way they see themselves and see their life is some of the most meaningful work I've ever got the opportunity to do. And if it wasn't for Wounded Warrior Project being that person for me, this wouldn't be happening now. So it sort of all comes back to Wounded Warrior Project at the end and how grateful I am for all they've done for me and what they continue to do for this entire generation of veterans and their families. So what I'd like to say about that is for those people who have ever been to a retreat or thought about going to a retreat, we want to tell them right now that if they want to go to the best retreat that they've ever been to in their life, that they need to contact you and go to Warrior Spirit Retreat. Yes, sir. WarriorSpiritRetreat.org. Check it out. Dan, if people want to reach out to you and find out more about anything that we've talked about today, I mean, obviously, if they want to go find out more about Wounded Warrior Project, they can go to their website, but how can they reach out if they want to contact you? How do you like to be contacted? The best way is through the website, dannevins.com. So I'm a storyteller, so I do keynote speeches around the world, as well as teach yoga. So dannevins.com is the best way. There's a contact form if people want to learn more or figure something out, or even if they want to ask a question. Or learn about Wounded Warrior Project. There's little tabs in there for like, hey, you want to learn more about this? Let me help you. And it's sort of like the information hub. Gotcha. And Dan, you know, we're both in Florida and St. Augustine is one of the places that I just want to spend a lot of time in because there's so many cool things to do there and it's so beautiful. So let's keep in touch when this thing launches off. Let's make a big deal about it and and put it all over the internet. So I really appreciate your time today. I think you're absolutely amazing. And I think one of Warrior Project is amazing. So thank you for sharing everything that you did today, not only about them, but about yourself. And it's been really an honor talking to you. Likewise, Pete. Thanks. Keep doing what you do. You're a great voice for us and especially for this generation of warriors and our families. Thank you. Bottom of my heart. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. Be sure to keep coming back each week for more great episodes. If you want to talk about something you learned today, if you have questions, or if you would like to be a guest on our podcast, go to AmericanHeroesNetwork.com and click on Contact Us. Thank you for listening.